And uh, not that I have any great skill, but that we got to uh, be invited in and to invite others into the process. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, Perry Lee. All right, we're going to begin together, and I'm excited about this morning. This morning we begin um, our, our walk through our, our core values, and uh, I'm not going to say anything about it because Dave's going to do that. Um, but I can tell you this one makes me excited because I'm this guy. Um, imperfect people matter. I'm, I'm imperfect, um, and I'm glad I matter. And, uh, and you guys do too. Um, so stand up with me. We're going to read a couple of scriptures together to begin. This first one from Matthew 11. Let's read together. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And our next one from Revelation. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let he who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely.
So I know 
is how to cry I am a sinner it's not one thing it's another caught up in words tangled in lies you are a savior and you take brokenness aside and make it Thank you for the work that you do in our lives, taking broken people and making beautiful things out of them. God, we ask that you would continue in that work this morning. Open our hearts and our heads to the truth of your word, to your love for us, and change us to be more like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. You guys can have a seat, and if you were one of our kids, K-5, through you can be dismissed to Sunshine Kids Club. Waypoints for the Journey is the title of this sermon series. Waypoints are simply those stations, those tracking points that 
remind us or let us know that we are on the right path as we continue on our journey. And so our waypoints for the journey in this sermon series are our vision and mission and core values as we look forward to what God has for us. This has been about an 18-month process uh, uh, we call Next Steps with a lot of people involved, a lot of prayer, a lot of scripture study, derailed for a while because of covid but we are back to it. We've seen vision and mission in the last two weeks. And this week we start core values. Now, core values more or less define God's heart for our church family. They are biblically based. They unite us in our culture and in our ministry. And since they're biblically based, they inspire us with great passion for ministry to carry out the calling that God has given us. The first core value that we're going to look at today, as Chris has already said, is imperfect people matter. Imperfect people matter. That's what we're going to look at today. God loves imperfect people. We must love imperfect people. And we will. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, as we gather in your presence uh, this morning and, and uh, have lifted our hearts in praise and you have given us grace to hear from you, we pray that you'd open our hearts to your word. We pray that you would help us to see God's love and you would, we pray that you would help us to see ourselves in your word today as well. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. God's grace looks good on imperfect people. Philip Yancey tells a story that made it into two of his most popular books that haunts him, and I think it haunts anyone who reads it or hears it, because God's grace looks good on imperfect people. It's a true story that a friend told him, a friend is a social worker, and I'm going to tell a shortened version of it. A prostitute came to me, said the social worker to Philip Yancey. In wretched straits, she was sick, homeless, and unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. She earned money at night to pay for her drug habit. I could barely bear to hear the words coming out of her mouth. At last, I asked her a question. Have you ever thought of going to a church for help? And I'll never forget the naive, pure shock that crossed her face when I asked that question. Church? Why would I ever consider going to church? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They would have made me feel much worse. What is striking about Scripture and the grace and truth that is Jesus Christ is that the people in dire straits fled toward Jesus, not away from him. Those who were down and out, who flocked to Jesus while he lived on earth, represented by this woman, no longer seemed to feel comfortable with Jesus. Has the church lost the gift of loving imperfect people? Do imperfect people matter to God? Well, at Conroe Bible Church, we want to answer that with an unqualified and a resounding yes. Imperfect people matter to God. That's our first core value. Do the logic here. God sent his son to earth because he loved the entire world. 
everyone. Jesus Christ demonstrated the love of God by dying on the cross for sinners. God's love is supremely manifest to people. We, the church, represent Jesus on earth. We must love people. That is our calling, and that is biblically based. Our hearts are filled with love and with grace to offer to a fallen world, but too often we get turned around, don't we? We get confused, we get uh, entitled, we, we, get, we get feeling like we're dutiful toward God. We get feeling like we're just bound up in our own circumstances, especially after a rough week like this. And we lose our perspective on what God is like. But by God's grace, we aim to offer a love that accepts, that it restores, that repairs relationships, that loves others unconditionally as they are and not as they should be. In short, a love that brings healing because imperfect people matter. I said the core values are biblically based, and today we're going to take our cue from a passage where the Pharisees, those great religious leaders in Israel, are asking Jesus a question. They want to know why he is so eager to approach and pursue sinners, those who are irreligious, those who are outcasts, those who do not act like good Israelites. The passage is Luke 15, 11 to 32. It's a well-known passage. And Jesus is happy to answer the Pharisees because God's grace looks good on imperfect people. And that's what he wants to make sure they know. He's explaining why sinners can be accepted into God's kingdom. And for our sakes, we're going to look at two brothers who are imperfect and God, who is perfect in his love for them. We get to see God's love demonstrated once more. I believe that the passage will turn out to be a mirror for you and I. In fact, I think you and I will see our imperfection in this story at some level. And we will recognize the love of God for us. I think we'll recognize the need and be motivated to love other people as a result. We're going to look at Luke 15, 11 to 32. It's commonly known as the prodigal son. Some would call it the forgiving father, and others would call it the begrudging brother. It's a well-known parable. I think we'll find ourselves in the story, and even better, I think we'll find God's grace. In, in Luke 15, 11 to 16, we see the rebellion of the younger son. In verse 11, it, it just starts off with this, as a man had two sons. We're going to discover there's a younger son and an older son. The younger son comes to the father very selfishly, and wants his inheritance. He says to the father, basically, I want what would be mine if you were dead right now. Now, culturally, that never happened. That, that just never happened. In fact, even historians tell us they just have trouble finding that anywhere. But especially in a collectivist society, and especially from the younger son, I want what's coming to me. And we read that the father divides up the estate. He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't argue. He doesn't try to explain to the younger son. In those days, the older son would get two-thirds of the estate, and the younger son would get a third. So the father divides his land, gives it to the younger son. And the younger son converts it to cash and takes off for a journey into a far country. His journey into a far country is going to leave behind... The boundaries of home, right? The traditions, all those Jewish teachings. His journey to a far country is going to take him to some place that's exotic, some place that he's longing for, some place that he's fantasizing about. And so the sun leaves and he heads out. 
Reckless living is kind of like skydiving. Feels very free uh, until you discover there's no parachute. And that's what happens in this young man's life. He heads to the far land and then he squanders all that he has with loose living, we read in verse 13. This young man was bulletproof, so he had no margin in his life, and he had spent everything. He had run out of cash. He had no job. And then a famine hits the land. It's kind of like us with no margin last week. Unable to get out, no power, no water, busted pipes, nothing in the stores when we could get out. This man faces a famine. And the people that he thought were his friends are all gone now. And he becomes hungry. He says, I got to get a job. So he, he takes a job. The only job this Jewish boy can find is to feed pigs. To feed pigs slop. And he is so hungry that the carob pods that he is feeding them, the, the, those pods that if anybody ever ate them, it was always the poorest of the poor. They looked good to him. He wasn't about to fight a pig for one, but they sure looked good. And he yearned with hunger. And this young man realized that he was experiencing justice. He was getting what he deserved, right? He had gone out and trashed his life and made a wreck of it. And now he was living with the consequences of foolish choices. But at some point, this very soft melody began to play in his heart and he began to remember the goodness of his father the kindness of his father to his hired servants much less to those who grew up in his home and he thought to himself you know if i go home i might be able to just get hired on as a servant because they eat far better than i do right now he began to dare to imagine the mercy of his father. He was moving from the justice he deserved to maybe my father will give me a little mercy here. Certainly his motives are mixed at this point. He, he just wants to survive, right? He just wants to go somewhere where he can get a job and eat. And so he does that. But at some point that moves from remorse to repentance because he comes to a place in his heart where he says i'm going to tell it out to my father straight you know i have sinned against god i have sinned against you and i would beg you to hire me on as a servant that i might continue to live he practiced that it became a well-rehearsed speech for him that he was going to give to his father. He is now taking a line of repentance. Well, in verses 20 to 24, we see rejoicing. He had gone to the far land. He came to his senses, which we read in verse 17. And that's just an Aramaic idiom, idiom that literally means repentance. He changed his mind. He came to himself. He became fully aware of his situation and what was possible back home. So the younger, home, the younger son heads home with anxiety. He's filled with tension. How will the father respond after he had dishonored him, after he had disgraced the family name, after he had wasted everything that the father had given him? graciously now, the father in the parable represents Jesus Jesus told this so that the Pharisees in front of him would begin to understand he put it in scripture so that we would begin to understand the grace of God that we would be, begin to understand God's love for us Jesus was accused of being a table companion of sinners of being open not only open to friendship but pursuing it and pursuing them later on luke would tell us that the words of jesus were i came to seek and to save that which was lost 
Well, very quickly, it becomes apparent that the father is filled with joy at seeing his son. There are no words of condemnation. There are no accusations. There are no thoughts of, I want you to feel the pain that I felt when you left. No condemnation. And the father comes to the son. He had been watching for the son. We, we don't know if he lived on a hill, if he was up on the roof. We don't know if he stood at the end of the driveway. We don't know how it worked. But we just know that he was watching for the son. And his son came and he moved, was moved with compassion. This is the father who was dishonored and disgraced. Everybody in the neighborhood knew about what had gone on with his son. But he's moved. He's moved with the longing of emotion and of love. That's his son. And he is coming home. The father doesn't stay, but in a very undignified manner for a man of his age and his wealth, he runs to his son. In that culture, servants ran. Men did not. He ran to his son, and his son still looking disheveled, still smelling like pig slop, he embraces his son. Doesn't wait for him to clean up. Can you imagine as he's running down and his son's a little concerned, what's he going to do to me? And he just gives him a bear hug. And I don't know if they stood in the, the middle of the road with a bear hug or, or if the force was so great that they tumbled into the field next to him, but he embraced his son. He embraced his son, and then he kissed him. He kept kissing him. His love was tangible in his words and in his actions. God's grace looks really good on imperfect people, and that's such an incredible image that Jesus gives us of the love of the Father. Everything that the son had sought in the far country, clothes, jewelry, friends, fun celebrations, parties, all of that left him, but he found it back at home. He found it in the love of the father. The father couldn't be stopped there. He had the servants come and, and, and bring the best robe, not just a robe, but the best robe, the kind the family wore. Put it on my son. Give him the ring. Put the ring on him with the family seal. He is restored to, to the family. Give him sandals like the family wears. He wanted him restored completely to the family. And it's quite moving to think of where this younger son has come from to where the father brought him through his unconditional love. He loved his son just as he is and not as he should be. The father spreads his joy, throws a party. We get a peek into his heart when he declares for everyone, my son was dead and now he's alive. My son was lost and now he is found. You've known that joy in a minor way when you found your cell phone or your keys or perhaps your own son or daughter who has returned home. It's the joy of the Father. And every time that we see God pursuing people, lost people, imperfect people, in Scripture there is great joy. Well, in Jesus' answer to the Pharisees, this scene represents salvation for the repentant. In our church family, for our application, it represents God's perfect love for imperfect people. God's perfect love for imperfect people. This foolish son who squandered the estate is received back with great rejoicing. And in the far country, he found misery. But back home, he found grace. Quite often... We are the younger son, imperfect, and needing to experience the love of God. 
Well, the focus now switches to the older son. Remember verse 11, a man had two sons. So in verse 25, the focus switches to the older son. And you might think that the party just continues, that there's excitement. Maybe he's bringing out the karaoke machine. I don't know. But it's not that way. The older son learns of this by coming in from the field. He is commendable that way. He's a hard worker. He always did what was required around the estate. He worked hard. He was dutiful. He did not bring dishonor and disgrace to the family name. He served the father. He's in the field working. Well, he comes home, and that's when he learns of the younger son's arrival. He can hear the music. He can see the dancing, or at least the shadows on the wall, and he is wondering what is up. And so he summons a servant. He's wondering why he wasn't invited to this party, why he wasn't made aware so that he could return from the field early and prepare for it. And the servant comes and says, well, your younger brother is home. (laughs) Perhaps no one had told the older brother because they all knew how he felt about his younger brother. They all knew that he thought the younger son should be considered dead, that he had dishonored the family. So people kept their distance. They knew where he stood. The servant says, your father is the one that's doing this. He's celebrated. He is celebrating your younger son. And so his stomach begins to churn. He develops a headache as he clenches his jaw and he is angry. The older son is angry at his younger brother. He has done nothing to deserve a party. He deserves justice. He deserves punishment. He deserves banishment is what he deserves. And what does the father do here? The father, again, representing Jesus, manifesting God's love for us in this story. The father came out to the older son. The father came out to the older son. He didn't send a servant get him. He didn't demand that he came in. He didn't holler from the house and say, get in here. He went out to see the son. He knew the tension the son was feeling. He wanted to bring grace to his son. He's making an appeal to his son's heart here. You see, he's not going to give a command that demands a right action. Get in here. He wants to awaken relationship in his heart. That's what this son is missing. So the father pleads with his older son, we read, your brother has returned. This is a time for celebration. We're not endorsing his lifestyle. We're not celebrating what he has done in his squandering of loose living and the estate. We are celebrating what God is doing right now, right here. The older son is angry at his father. How in the world can you celebrate this son who has dishonored us, who has disgraced us? I'm a part of this family and I feel it as strongly as you do. I'm sure he had his some choice words for his father. Well, the, the pride begins to spread out, spill out <laughs> from the older son through bitterness, through disrespect, through misunderstanding of relationships. In his disrespect for his father, he he, he screams at his dad, look, you pay attention to me. That's not how a son addressed a father in that culture. That's not how a son should address a father in today's culture. You listen to me. This is wrong. There is nothing right that is about this about this. He is angry. He does not deserve a reward. I do. He deserves retribution. 
The older son sees himself as perfect and better than his brother. He's misunderstood his relationship with the father. He's viewed himself as a slave. You can see it in his words. I'm the one who is serving you. That's not words of sonship. That's the word of a slave. I, I, I'm the one that's serving you. I've never disobeyed a command. A command, that's a, that's a word for a slave. That's not a word for a son. You, you can see that he views himself differently. He doesn't view himself in a deep heart-to-heart -heart relationship with his father. And he completely misses out all that the father has for him. As a result, he approaches his work with grim duty instead of delight. He is not exhibiting love for the father. And this is not how a father wants a son to relate to him. You see, grace is foreign to the older brother. He cannot rest in his father's love that is just as generous for him as it is for the younger son. Because he is so filled with duty and obligation and obeying commands Breaking through to a person that misunderstands relationship is difficult. The father chooses to serve, serve up grace anyway. Self-righteousness of the older brother spills out in his complaints to the father. Not only about himself, but now he just spews out the sins of his brother. My brother went after prostitutes. My brother wasted your money. My brother dishonored you and disgraced us. Except that he doesn't even say, my brother. He says, your son. Your son has done this. He has elevated himself in his eyes by his own self-righteousness. He's not upset that the younger brother has faced consequences for his foolish choices. He's upset that his younger brother is experiencing grace and love. And he's completely missed out on all of that. He's so focused on the outward sins of the flesh in his younger brother that he misses the inward sins of the heart. For him. And so he's completely silent on the sins of pride and anger and self-righteousness and lack of love or concern for a family member. He doesn't bring that up with his father. And now we see the father again representing Jesus and the unconditional love of God for him. He starts off and says, son, now, that may seem impersonal, but in the original language, it's a, it's a term of very tender affection. You, you could also interpret it child, my child. He, he doesn't have choice words in return for his son. He's not picking up on the anger, and he's not developing accusations of his own. He has every right to, right? He's the father. His son is completely out of place, and he can refute everything the son has said. Or some of it. But he doesn't do that. He draws him in with son, my child. And then he takes it further. He says, you are always with me. Again, he's trying to stir the son's heart with that relationship that they've got. It's a heart of love. It's a relationship of love. It's a, it's a relationship that reaches out and engages. And then he keeps going and he says, all I have belongs to you. That was true. All that was left uh, was strictly the son's inheritance, uh, unless there were daughters, and they may have gotten like two-fifteenths or something like that. I can't remember the, the Jewish way of dividing it all up, but it was very, very minimal, unfortunately. It was his. He could have a party anytime he wanted. He could have come to the father anytime he wanted, but he didn't. He saw himself as obligated to the father. He saw himself in a working relationship with the father. And finally, the father just tries to break through to his heart with the unbridled joy. My son, your brother was dead and now he's alive. 
He's letting him know that he is fully welcomed back. My son, your brother who was lost is now found. And this is a time for rejoicing. We have such a contrast here between the younger son and his loose living and the unconditional love of God for those who squander life, for those who face consequences of foolish living. And, and between the older son who has built up this wall of pride and self-righteousness and unable to connect with the father and yet the father representing Jesus and the unconditional love of God loves him. interesting the way Jesus ends this story we're kind of left hanging we don't know what happens to the older son we don't know what he decides if he says okay if he asks forgiveness if he comes into the party or if he leaves the family if he stays out in the field we're not told in the description of the older brother we get a depiction of the Pharisees and their attitude toward imperfect people, to people who didn't measure up to their standards, much less God's standards. The Father's love. <laughs> the Father's love is a stunning assault on the rebellion of the younger son and the self-righteousness of the older son. He just sheds grace. God's grace looks good on imperfect people. In our church family, Jesus represents God's perfect love for imperfect people. God's grace looks good that way. The older son who sequesters himself in self-righteousness is, is drawing himself away from the grace of Jesus Christ. Will he accept it? I sure hope so. In fact, I believe he will. I believe it's too strong of a draw. I believe that it will turn his heart to the love and grace of God. But quite often as the, younger, the older brother, the role we play sometimes, we are imperfect and needing to experience the love of Jesus. As we think about Jesus' love for imperfect people, I want to quickly review each person of the story. The younger son represents people who know they've done wrong. And the test to see if you're behaving like a, a younger son might be this. Do you wonder if God is holding out on you? Do you think you need things of the world to satisfy you? And if so, come home. Come home just as you are. The younger son is an imperfect person and imperfect people matter. We saw it in the love of the father. We love an imperfect person. We are not celebrating their foolishness. We're simply accepting them and loving them with the grace of God. We're not going to condemn them with judgmental attitudes. We're not going to accuse them. Our words and deeds will remind them of the inexhaustible grace of God for them. Imperfect people can teach us a great deal about intimacy with Jesus when they return. We want to be people that God uses to love and accept them. The older son, the older son represents people who think they have done no wrong. And perhaps the test to see if you're behaving as an older son is this. Do you think he has a legitimate beef? Do you find yourself siding with the, the older son, agreeing with his arguments, thinking he may have left some things out? And secretly at times, the older son is the one who wants to join the younger son on the journey and live out his passions. Sometimes there's a bit of jealousy. The older son is an imperfect person. He confuses respectability with righteousness and busyness with godliness. He has walled himself up with pride and bitterness and while he thinks that he's doing everything right, it's, it leaves him with a hollow feeling inside because he's not even experiencing the love of Christ. 
The younger son represents the sins of the flesh with which we often struggle. The older son represents sins of the spirit, which enslave us just as strongly. Uh, some of the more, more than one commentary on this passage says the older son represents church people. People have been too long in church. And so that draws us back to the introduction, doesn't it? The story of the prostitute. We want to be a people who bring God's grace to imperfect people. Both the younger son and the older son are imperfect people. Both need the love of Christ to remind them of their acceptance by God, to draw them back to Jesus and let him transform them. Where sin abounds, grace abounds so much more. The father is representing the love of God through Jesus for sinners. And Luke 15 is about the love of God coming into the world to search out sinners, to accept them, to find lost sons and daughters. It reveals the identity and the mission of Jesus. And one of the most beautiful passages in all of scripture is verse 20. Chapter 15, verse 20. It says this. So the younger son got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. What an incredible passage to meditate upon. Even this week, to let yourself experience the love and grace of God. To prepare yourself, ourselves, to give love and grace to imperfect people. Rembrandt's last painting was one that was filled with tremendous nuance, tremendous beauty, called The Return of the Prodigal. Did it make it to the screen? Oh, it did. Okay, good. When you observe that painting, you begin to see verse 20 come alive in the tender, affectionate embrace of the father. The harshness of the older son looking on from the side. Our application in the church family is the love of Jesus for imperfect people. We see two, pe two persons, two people, two sons who are lost to sin. And representing Jesus, the Father reaches out in love and grace. He gave them a sense of dignity. Shame and guilt and humiliation was removed in his presence as he came to them. And notice what he did not do. He did not lecture them on ingratitude. He did not accuse them. He did not condemn them. He accepted them as they were and not as they should be. Perhaps the test to see if we're behaving like Jesus is to ask ourselves, do I love without expecting anything in return? Am I willing to accept people just as they are and not as they should be? Are we willing to go to them and give them dignity, those who are imperfect. Well, people matter. We know that Jesus loves people. He gave his life to redeem people. The original context of the parable relates to the love of God for people. We love imperfect people because God first loved us. Core values define who we are as we follow the heart of God for our church family. And in that vein, they create passion for ministry. There is no expectation at Conroe Bible Church that you will be perfect. When you come, when you stay, when you interact in community, and when you serve the Lord, there is an expectation that you will be imperfect. And our expectation with this core value is that we will choose to love and bring God's grace to those who are imperfect because imperfect people matter. 
Everyone has the capacity for faithfulness, but everyone struggles with it. Some with sins of the flesh and some with sins of the heart, as we saw in the two sons. And we know that we are not content to remain where we are. We want to pursue Christ's likeness. But we will do that joining hands as imperfect people and journeying faith, journeying forward in faith, pursuing Jesus Christ, experiencing his love and grace. And so perhaps the question I could leave you with, ask you questions by way of test, but perhaps the most engaging question for us to consider as we consider bringing love and grace to imperfect people is this. Do you believe that God is head over heels in love with you? Can you accept his love for you? Because when you are so strengthened and so significant, to recognize his love for you, then you are free. You are free to love others. You are free to accept them as they are and to love them with the grace of Jesus Christ. That's the people we want to be based on our first core value. God's grace looks good on imperfect people. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for taking the time to tell this parable, not just for the Pharisees' sake, but for our sake. We are imperfect people, and sometimes we forget that, and sometimes we exalt it, and sometimes we are broken by it. We pray that in our brokenness that you would use us, that you would allow us to experience your head over heels love for us, and by that just push us toward one another with a love that accepts and graces each other with your inexhaustible love. We thank you that we can entrust ourselves to you in that way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us?
guys for being with us this morning. Y'all have a good week.